0: in the heavenly realm. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this word Thank you, Lord, that you've opened our eyes to the knowledge of the truth. Father, we pray that you would deliver this word to us now in the power of your Spirit, that we would be transformed by it, that we would be equipped even as we hear your word this night for this battle against this enemy. In Christ's name, amen. So tonight we continue this final section of Paul's letter to converts in Ephesus. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14. And we should understand that Paul is writing to them and to us as believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to people who had been made spiritually alive, who'd received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, all of the sovereign grace of God. But who now live in an evil, fallen world, ruled by the devil, the enemy of God. The devil has been cast out of God's presence. He was defeated by Christ at the cross, and at the cross he was limited in what he can now do. He can no longer stop the spread of the gospel among the nations, but, Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5:8, He still prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He seeks to destroy the work of Christ in us. He seeks to take all humanity to hell with Him. We must understand, Satan is a very real and very powerful enemy. He seeks our destruction The world makes him out to be a cartoon character. Sports teams name their mascots after him. Blue devils, red devils, sun devils. We name food after him. Devil's food, deviled eggs. But he is a very real, evil, and destructive being who seeks our destruction, who seeks to cause all of us to fall away from the faith. He seeks to lead us to fail to persevere in the faith. It goes by different names in the Scriptures. It's called the devil, Satan, the serpent of old. He's pictured in Revelation as a dragon. And he disguises himself. He masquerades as an angel of light. He's a deceiver. He doesn't come at us straight on. He uses deception. He uses cunning. And he uses deceptive strategies to harm us. We usually don't see him coming. He seeks to stir in us all manner of sin. First and foremost, among his deceptions, he seeks to cause us to doubt the Word of God. He seeks to cause us to reject what God has said to us in his Word. He seeks to evoke in us anger and Bitterness and envy and hatred. So, Paul is telling us we must equip ourselves for this warfare with him, lest we fall away. And I've said this before, but I I want to say it again. This does not mean that one who has been truly born again can lose eternal life. That can never happen. But the Apostle John writes, that those who do fall away never were truly born again. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, people who left the church, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown they're all not of us. And this is why we pray for those who've Were once among us and who have left, and who are out of fellowship, who have lost hunger to know God, to be among His people, to serve in His church. We don't want to be among those who fall away. We don't want to be among those who ultimately will stand condemned before God. And so, since we're going to face this hostility and opposition in this life from these satanic enemies, We have to arm ourselves for this battle. These are spiritual beings, and we do not possess in ourselves the strength or the power to fight this battle. But, to the praise of the glory of His grace, God has provided His power for us in the warfare against Satan. And so, Paul calls us to be strong in the Lord to find our source of power and strength in Him. Now, last week, we looked at the question, who are these deadly foes, who themselves work through all manner of instruments, who work through other humans to deceive us, who seek to take us to hell with them? Well, verse 12, He identifies them. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, but against the rulers, against the powers and authorities, against the world forces, the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. We're not fighting against men with all their limitations, both physical and mental. Our struggle is against all the evil forces of darkness. Look at these words. These world rulers of darkness are those who, from the time of the fall of Adam and under God's permission, now rule in the fallen world. This term, world rulers of this darkness, points to the darkness that is of the spiritual world to which these rulers belong. And the rule of these demons in that domain. This is the domain from which we have been rescued. And that world that they rule is a world of darkness. Colossians 1.13, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So the devil inhabits the spiritual realm, but he reigns in the world. And because of the fall of Adam, the world is now in darkness. Chapter 2, verse 2. All men come into the world separated from God. Children of wrath. Children of darkness. Where Satan rules. And as Jesus said to those Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Those who remain in unbelief and separated from God remain in the darkness. They remain under the power and the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. But for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. He has freed us from the power and dominion of Satan and sin. Darkness is the enemy of light. It's hostile to the light that is God. It's hostile to all who are children of light. And Satan seeks to destroy the children of God. So, this conflict we now have takes place both on the earth, where we are, and in the spiritual realm where the demons reside. We can't see them, but they are there. And they are at war against us. They're using our own lusts. They're using our greed. They're using other humans to entice us away from Christ. The truth is, we tend to lack a genuine appreciation for that from which we have been rescued. We lack a true appreciation of just how evil the fallen world is. It's a world that's opposed to God, that is opposed to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is ruled by Satan. And it is this darkness from which we who have been born again of God, have been rescued. And many professing Christians seem to be unaware that there is even a war in progress. Or, if they are aware, they consider it one to be fought on a purely human level that can be won by using human resources and human arguments. But our struggle is not against other people we're engaged in deadly warfare against the God of this world and all the spiritual forces of evil. 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Therefore, verse 13, Take up the full armor of God. Not part of it, all of it. So that you will be able to resist, to stand your ground in the evil day. Having done everything to stand firm. This is very much a repeat of what we read in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes, against the crafty methods of the devil. So he's saying, don't don't let the devil find you defenseless. Take up your armor and take up all of it. If we think that the Christian life is simply going to be a matter of human effort or human exertion, we have misunderstood the word of God. And we're not going to be able to resist the evil one. If we're going to overcome, we must take hold of the armor he's made available to us. Only spiritual weapons are going to be of any value in this struggle. And so, verse 13, Paul here is repeating this call to take up the divine armor. God's provided us with the necessary weaponry to withstand the attacks of Satan. Now, that's a glorious and blessed thought and truth. But it's incumbent upon us that we put it on. In the face of this unrelenting spiritual warfare, we must put it on. The full armor, the panoply, a picture based on the suit of armor of the Roman foot soldier. And this is the weaponry that is going to equip and empower us to stand firm against the crafty schemes of the devil. And Paul writes here, Put it on so that you'll be able to stand against or resist to hold your ground in the evil day. I'm going to look at what that means now. But I want to point out in verses 13, 14, and 15, Paul is speaking in terms of a defensive stand against Satan's attacks. Now, there's some disagreement on this, but as I read this, In verse 16, Paul then begins to turn and speak more in offensive terms, in terms of offensive weaponry. So what is this evil day? Is it one particular day? Is it a reference to an entire period of time? Well, the phrase appears only here in Paul's letters. Now, there are similar phrases in Paul's letters and in the Gospels. In chapter 5, verse 16, Paul wrote that the days are evil. Here he writes of in the evil day. Galatians 1.4, Paul wrote of this present evil age. Now, Jesus also spoke in Mark 8.38 of this evil and adulterous generation. But this phrase, in the evil day, appears only here. So, of what is Paul speaking here? Is he talking about a particular day? Is he talking about an entire age? Well, there are many views as to what this evil day means, what Paul intends here. Some believe he's referring to a final cataclysmic uh, satanic outbreak just prior to the return of Christ. It's a day when satanic opposition to Christ will reach something of a zenith. Perhaps he's talking about uh, what, what might happen during the symbolic short time of Revelation 20, verse 3. Some understand this phrase, the evil day, to refer to the entire time of the believer's life. Others to the entire period from the first coming of Christ to His return. And I would add the third possibility in that vein, the entire period from the time of the fall until Christ's return. Others see this phrase in the evil day, we hope you'll be able to resist, as Paul referring to some critical times in the life of every believer when the hostility and attack of Satan is at its strongest. And some see Paul is referring to different combinations of these ideas. Scripture is clear, though. We live in a fallen, evil, idolatrous world. And Paul's reminding us here that in this world, We are going to face constant and unrelenting attacks from Satan and his demons. We've been in a fallen, corrupt, idolatrous world from the time of the fall. But there will also be, for each one of us, particular times of temptation or difficulty where we're going to be subject to Satan looking for weaknesses in us, where he'll look for weaknesses in us and seek to exploit those weaknesses. Maybe we lost a job. Maybe we had a divorce. Maybe we have doubt because of some money troubles. A number of different things might happen where Satan comes in and says, well, if God really loved you, he wouldn't make you go through this. But you see, these trials are part of the Christian life. They build character. They are part of God's work in sanctifying us. But Satan will try to use every difficulty. And on the other hand, he will try to use to appeal to our desire for earthly things, earthly pleasure. He'll try to appeal to our lusts, try to draw us into sinful behaviors. So the war is one in which he comes at us from every direction. So is there going to be one evil day in each one of our lives? Probably more than one. So I think Paul is saying, look, you're in a fallen world, and Satan's going to come at you. And sometimes that attack is going to be at its strongest. And you need to take up this armor in order to be prepared for those days when those attacks come. And he's going to attack us when we least expect it. He wants us to feel secure, feel safe. Wants, to, wants us to think we're out of danger now that we've been born again, now that we're in the church. We're coming to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. We're reading our Bible every day. That doesn't mean he's going to let up. What it means is we know better than to not prepare ourselves for his attacks, that we must equip ourselves with the power that God has made available to us, his power, his strength. So that means we've got to take up this armor of God. That he's made available to us. Because if we do. We will be able to resist these attacks. To stand firm against these schemes of the devil. So what Paul's getting at by this expression. In the evil day. He's telling us. Get yourself ready. Prepare yourselves. For hard, painful, and even dangerous conflicts. Knowing that if we draw on his power. We will overcome. So he says, and having done everything, in other words, having made all the necessary preparations for this warfare, that you stand firm. When we prepare ourselves in the manner God himself has directed, by equipping ourselves with his power, his armor, we can meet any danger. Those who prepare themselves by availing themselves of the full armor of God, who rest in his power, will not fail in the battle against Satan. The strength that is gained by utilizing this full armor of God is stronger than all the power of the evil one and all the power of all the forces of darkness. God's strength is more powerful. This isn't even about victory and defeat because the victory's already been won by Christ. This is about standing firm now, that victory having been won. And... Not only was Paul writing under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, he was writing from his own experience. He was constantly under attack by Satan-inspired violence, both from the Jews and from the Gentile or pagan authorities. He was under attack by the false teaching of the Judaizers in Galatia, by the Gnostics in Ephesus and Colossae, under attack from fanatics in Thessalonica under attack from the vestiges of paganism and idolatry and immorality that he ran into in Corinth and Ephesus and elsewhere and like us like us he was under attack from the lusts of his own flesh so as he went into the world with the good news of the kingdom of God of forgiveness of all our sins through faith in Lord Jesus Christ. As he was doing that, Paul was going into pagan territories. He was going into territory which until his arrival had been held exclusively by the devil for centuries. First John five nineteen: The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do you hear this? The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, we can see he needed not only defensive armor, but as he went into this territories held by Satan, he needed some offensive weaponry. As I believe is what we're going to see in verses 16 through 20. He made incursions into hostile territory, into enemy territory. Because the devil had possession of something that he did not want to let go of. He had possession of the souls of men. And Paul was bringing the gospel the gospel which alone could be the instrument by which the souls of men are rescued from the domain of darkness let's turn now to the armor that God has provided us, what is this armor well the battle is spiritual so the armor, the weaponry must also be spiritual earthly armor will be of no use in this battle And Paul says we're going to need every weapon that God has made available to us truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the Word of God, and prayer. Going to need them all. Now, verses 14 through 20 constitute the last of eight long sentences that we've seen in Ephesians. First one was in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And there have been seven of these very long sentences throughout this letter. This is the eighth one, from verses 14 through 20. It's 113 words, and it's divided, as I read it, into two parts. Verses 14 and 15, where we're taught to stand firm, and verses 16 through 20, where we're taught to take up this armor. Now, Paul, in describing this armor, uses the illustration of the Roman foot soldiers the Roman hoplite, as he was called. He was a heavily armed Roman warrior as he would go into battle. And he's also going to speak of a seventh weapon, which has no reference to the Roman uh, battle regalia. So the Greek historian Polybius describes the Roman hoplite as having a shield, a sword, two javelins, a helmet, greaves, and a heart guard. I asked earlier, does anybody know what greaves are? I did have to look it up as well. And greaves refers to something that looks like a shin guard. If you've ever been a catcher or seen a catcher, you'll see he's wearing these shin guards that cover his knees and shins against uh, the ball coming and uh, hitting him. Well, these greaves would be made most likely of metal, some very strong and heavy metal. And this Roman soldier would wear these, along with the rest of this armor, into battle. Now, Paul's not giving us a precise duplication of the Roman soldier's battle regalia here. But he's using that kind of illustration to present this picture of the armor of God that we must put on. He's also alluding to some imagery that we see in the prophet Isaiah. And in fact, he alludes to a couple of particular verses in Isaiah where the prophet describes the armor of Yahweh and his Messiah whom he would send. So Paul draws from that as well. And Paul doesn't copy Isaiah word for word necessarily. He alludes to these passages to demonstrate the truth he wants to teach. But if you look at Isaiah fifty-nine seventeen, he put on righteousness like a breastplate. Well, we have that here and a helmet of salvation on his head. We have that as well. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Now Paul had used similar language in other of his letters. One example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Now, most see a natural and significant order to these items of armor, and the first one is truth. Truth. The Christian is going to have to put on this armor piece by piece in a belt himself. He's going to clothe himself, he'll put on shoes, he'll put on a helmet. All of this necessary in order to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins in truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, this is the third time that Paul uses this phrase, stand firm. We saw it in verse 11, saw it in verse 13. In this phrase, stand firm, pretty clearly speaks of a defensive posture. The defensive armor is what Paul describes here in verses 14 and 15. This term, having girded your loins with or in truth, the King James renders it this way, having your loins girt about with truth. English Standard Version has it, having fastened on the belt of truth. Holman Christian Standard has it, with truth like a belt around your waist. So we see waist and loins used a little bit interchangeably here, and and different translators render it differently. But what matters is we're going to put on truth first. This is the sine qua non. This one is essential, not only to all of the rest, but to being able to defend against the attacks of Satan. And what we have here, having girded your loins with or in truth, is not an exact quote, but it's a pretty clear allusion to Isaiah 11.5 as we find it in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which says, And he shall have his loins girt with righteousness and his sides clothed with truth. Isaiah prophesied that the rule of God's anointed one in the divine kingdom would be characterized by righteousness and truth. Now, this is interesting because when we look at chapter 4 and verse 24, Paul tells us to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So these two are vital righteousness and truth and this order where we begin with truth is deliberate and it's of great importance to us so Paul talks about girding oneself this idea of fastening clothing securely around one's waist or girding one's loins signifies for us someone preparing for some activity, preparing to do something, not necessarily war in this case war, but In Luke 12.37, we find that the slave will gird himself to serve the master. Preparation. In John chapter 13, verse 4, Jesus laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself in preparation for washing his disciples' feet. Now, for a Roman soldier... This belt probably refers to a leather apron which hung under the armor rather than the sword belt which would have been worn over the armor. This is the first thing he puts on. And that's the significance here, that it's the first thing he puts on. In the case of the believer, the first thing he must put on that he must gird his loins or his waist with in readiness for battle is truth. You've got to have truth. If you do not have the truth, you will be defenseless against Satan. You have no hope. You must have the truth. This piece of armor is foundational to all the others. And it is absolutely necessary to withstand Satan's attacks. Paul talks about truth here. Now what's he talking about? Is he talking about truth in general? Is he talking about the gospel? Talking about Being truthful yourself, subjective truth. Well, he mentions truth or truthfulness or the truth in chapter 1, verse 13, in chapter 4, in several verses, 15, 21, 24, 25, chapter 5, verse 9, Paul condemns lying and every falsehood and the deceitfulness that characterizes the men of the world that characterized the old man in chapter 4, verse 14 and 24, in chapter 5, verse 6. So Paul is all for the truth. But what truth is he talking about? Well, some would say he's talking about being truthful, about having a, an integrity of mind and heart, being a truthful person, being a person who is not guileful or, or deceitful or, or hypocritical. He's talking about truth in the inner man, some would say. Others would say, no, he's not talking about this moral quality of truthfulness. What he's talking about is the divine saving truth, which amounts to the gospel. And several would say that. We see him referring to the gospel in chapter 4, verse 15. We see him referring to the message of truth, the gospel, in chapter 1, verse 13. And we also see the truth of the gospel working in and and working through the lives of believers. In chapter 4, verse 25, don't speak falsehood anymore. Chapter 5, verse 9, speak truthfully. Don't be deceitful. So we have the truth given to us, and then we have the truth working in us and being manifested in us. I believe what he's talking about here is the same thing that Jesus was talking about in his prayer In John chapter 17, on the night before he died, he says to his father, Father, sanctify them, my disciples. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So earlier I asked, what do you think this is? Do you think it's the gospel itself? Do you think it's truthfulness within us? And Ron said, it's the whole Bible. And I believe that's correct. I think he's talking about the whole of Scripture here. First Peter one thirteen, Peter wrote, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Well, it's the mind where we first receive truth and then into the heart. So he's speaking of our knowledge of, our belief in the truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Our master of the truth And the truth's mastery over us is what Paul's talking about here. Know the truth and let the truth guide us in our lives. In other words, we must know the truth or we will be defenseless, but we must also appropriate that truth so that it controls all that we think, say, and do. Our lives should be guided by the truth of God presented in Scripture. And yes, that includes certainly the gospel, the message of truth. But Paul's going to get to the gospel of peace in the third item. So I believe here he's speaking of the whole of the truth of God. Take that up. Take the word of God into your heart. Live with it. Read it daily. If we don't have the truth, if we don't live trusting in the truth, if we've not made the truth, the ruling principle of our lives, we will be defenseless against the devil. We will have no defense. Without the truth, we have no defense. So we must take in the whole truth, all of it, and live by it, if we're to defend ourselves against this spiritual enemy. And this is our first and absolutely necessary item of armor necessary for our defense against the deceptions of the enemy. We read back in chapter 4 that Christ gave to His church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? Why did He do that? Why did He give to His church these ministers? To help gird the loins of His people with truth. He wanted to have teachers. He appoints teachers and pastors still today to help people to gird their loins with the truth. The creeds of the early church were for the purpose of gathering the whole truth of Scripture and setting them forth so that people could gird their loins with truth and not with error and not with falsehood. When the Reformation came, and all the errors of Rome had spread throughout the world. What happened? Confessions of the reformers, Belgic, Helvetic, French, eventually Westminster and the London Baptist Confession of 1689, were ways of helping us to gird our loins with truth. The church councils were to seek out and know the truth of Scripture. We must gird our loins with truth. If we don't do that, we will fail in the war against Satan. And so Paul begins his discussion of the full armor of God with this item of armor. So we're going to stop there for tonight. And next week, Lord willing, we will pick up in, still in verse 14, with the breastplate of righteousness. So let's take a moment, reflect on the things the Lord has taught us this evening, and then we will close in prayer. Well, Lord, I do thank you for all those gathered here tonight, all those who would hear this message. I pray, Lord, that you would impart your truth, impress it deep into our hearts and minds, that we would rest in it, that we would live by it, that we would trust in it, in all things. In Christ's name, amen.